Hello, I'm James Egan and I'm a barrister at 10 Old Square. Today I'm going to be looking at Marlton Shearer, which is a recent decision of the High Court and which concerned a 1975 Act claim brought by two adult children. Now the facts of this case are as follows. The claimants were the two adult daughters of Tony Shearer. Prior to his death, Mr. Shearer was the CEO of Singer and Friedlander for a short period of time and was very financially well off. Tony and his first wife, Jennifer, had two daughters, Juliet, who was aged 40 at the time of the claim, and Loretta, who was aged 38 at the time of the claim. And it was Juliet and Loretta who were the claimants. During their childhood and early adulthood, the daughters had had very good lives and were well provided for by Tony and Jennifer and they had benefited from private education and expensive gap years. But sadly, their parents divorced in 2007, and shortly thereafter, Tony met and later married Pamela, his second wife, and as we will come to see, Pamela was the defendant to the claim. In 2008, so around nine years before his death, Tony made two very substantial gifts to his daughters, Juliet received 177,000 and Loretta received 185,000. And Tony considered this to be the end of his financial involvement with his daughters and wrote them letters to that effect. Sadly, Tony died in 2017 and the main provisions of his will made Pamela, the second wife, the principal beneficiary of his estate and he left nothing to his two daughters. Although it's worth noting that there were some substitutionary provisions for the daughters if Pamela predeceased Tony. Generally speaking, this was a mirror will with Pamela, his second wife. Now, on his death, the estate was worth 2.2 million or thereabouts, although there were some other assets that passed outside of the will to Pamela. Now, in terms of the claims, Juliet was seeking a fund for housing, the cost of retraining to be a dog trainer and behaviourist, and also a loss of income. But in terms of her resources, she was living in a large property with her mother and with her daughter, and had capital of around £175,000. On the other hand, Loretta was claiming for a sum of money to enable her to change her interest-only mortgage to a repayment mortgage, and a further sum to enable her to buy out her ex-husband's share of the property she lived in. In terms of her income resources, she had a salary in the region of around £70,000 per annum and around £300,000 in equity in her property. Now, Pamela, the second wife and defendant to the claim, was not raising a needs-based defence. And so the principal issue for the court will have been whether or not Tony's will made reasonable financial provision for either or both of the two daughters. Now, ultimately, the judge found that in all the circumstances, the deceased will did not fail to make reasonable financial provision for the claimants, and so their claim failed. But it's worth looking at some of the main issues before the court. Now, as you'll appreciate, as a 75 Act claim, the court will have to consider the Section 3 factors at both stages of the inquiry, whether or not the will made reasonable financial provision for the two daughters, and if not, what reasonable financial provision should have been made, or at least should be made. Now, amongst these Section 3 factors, there are three in particular in this case that are quite interesting to focus upon. First, whether the claimants could demonstrate needs for maintenance, which they could not meet. 
second, whether the deceased had any obligations towards his adult children, and third, the wider conduct considerations. And, and we'll look at those in more detail now. Now, what was decided in respect of the key issues? Well, the first is the Section 31A and B, financial resources and needs. Now, the judge held that neither claimant could demonstrate needs for maintenance which they could not meet, if necessary, by adjustment to their lifestyle. And that last phrasing is quite an interesting comment by the judge, which I'll come on to consider later in this podcast. But what the judge noted is that not only did these two claimants have quite considerable financial resources of their own, um, being financially independent, but both had received financial assistance from their mother over the years following their parents' divorce. And in evidence, the mother had indicated a general intention to continue helping both daughters financially. Now, the judge noted that none of the other reported cases of 75 Act claims by adult children had this particular factual element of a surviving parent offering to continue to help the adult children financially. And interestingly, the judge noted that the claimant's mother's resources were substantially derived from the division of assets on the divorce from Tony. Now, the judge held that even if the claimants had been able to demonstrate needs for maintenance, which he found they weren't, that would in any event have been outweighed by the factors under Section 31D and G, which we'll come on to consider now. Now, Section 31D is looking at the obligations and responsibilities which the deceased had towards the claimants. Now, the judge reiterated the well-known principle that a parent was not legally obliged to maintain an adult child. And we can see this principle going back to the Supreme Court case of Islet and Mitz, and in many cases before then. What Section 31D is focusing upon is obligations and responsibilities which the deceased had immediately prior to his or her death, and not such obligations in the past. And the judge found that the deceased had no obligations and responsibilities towards either claimant immediately before or at the time of his death. Any obligations or responsibilities which the deceased might have considered he had on the evidence appeared to have been brought to an end in around 2008 when those substantial gifts were made. And so the judge found that any obligations existing when the claimants were in their 20s or early adulthood were simply irrelevant and were not continuing. The second matter is Section 31G, which is looking at any other matter, including the conduct of the applicant or any other person. Now, here the judge indicated that the deceased clearly knew his own mind, acted of his own free will. And it was a very important aspect of the relationship between the deceased and the claimants that after he made the 2008 gifts, he was not prepared to provide further financial assistance to them. And so the judge found that the lifestyle choices the two daughters subsequently made were not dependent on the expectation of any assistance or any further assistance from the deceased. And so this was a very important element in the judge's reasoning. And so altogether, as I indicated earlier, the judge found that in all the circumstances, the deceased's will did not fail to make reasonable financial provision for the claimants. Now, why is this case interesting? Well, I, I think there are two points here. First of all, it reinforces the idea that financially independent adult children bringing successful 1975 Act claims 
will be rare. But what is somewhat unusual about this case is that the two claimants were reasonably well off and financially able to support themselves. And so the judge was unpersuaded by the argument that they in fact had needs that they were incapable of meeting. But when we're looking at this question of whether they did have financial needs that they were incapable of meeting, there's the interesting comment that I alluded to earlier where the judge mentioned that any needs could be capable of being met by, quote, adjustment to their lifestyle. And so there was some suggestion here from the judge that even if the daughters had been able to persuade the judge that they had certain financial needs that they were incapable of meeting, the court might first expect the daughters to make some adjustments to their lifestyle before turning to the deceased's estate for further financial provision. In any event, this may simply have been a passing comment by the judge. Certainly, it was obiter. And the judge indicated that even if the daughters had been able to persuade the court that they had needs that they were incapable of meeting, that factor would have been outweighed by the wider Section 3 factors, uh, which ultimately led to the dismissal of the claim. So looking at this case in the round, I think it reiterates the general idea that successful claims by financially independent adult children will be rare. But in any event, 1975 Act claims are inherently fact-sensitive, and so the risks involved in pursuing them to trial outside of the very, very clear-cut cases will be relatively substantial. And so it, it may well be moving forwards that we continue to see few 75 Act claims proceeding all the way to trial with a considerable number settling along the way. Thank you very much for listening this morning. 